Kubernetes community, and welcome back to the Pod CTL podcast. Uh, it's another week down in the Kubernetes community. Uh, not a lot of news this week, but we have a couple uh, interesting things that came up, as well as we're going to talk about some of the things that we see really commonly in open source projects and specifically in Kubernetes, which is installers. Yeah. Why, you know, why is there not just one? Why is there always end up being a lot of them, huh? All right, exactly. So uh, we're going to talk about the big Kubernetes toolbox, at least part of the toolbox, maybe like three or four shelves worth of it and, and get into that. So the other thing, thanks to everybody who's been listening. Um, the show has been several times in the top 100 of the tech podcast on iTunes. So folks are listening, uh, telling a friend, uh, if you can give us some ratings, we'd love some feedback and uh, all the details about how to reach us, you know, at PodCTL on Twitter and the email and the blog and all that stuff are uh, in the show notes. So thanks for listening for everybody. Tyler, you want to, uh, what's been in the news? Like you said, it was a little bit of a slow news week in terms of Kubernetes specifically, but there was a little bit of news. Uh, yeah, the, this week was, was VMworld, uh, VMware's twice annual uh, conference and usually gets some sort of mix of their usual you know, virtualization news and, and announcements. And then there's, there's some usually what we consider modern app dev or, or whatever you want to call it announcements. And, right. and this, this year wasn't any different. It was an announcement by VMware with Google and Pivotal really to take a package version of Pivotal's Kubo project, which is a Kubernetes deployer, and package up as a commercial offering called the Pivotal Container Service. So just the basics of this, and we'll put the, the link to it in the show notes for folks that want to dig in. There was a project that uh, Google and Pivotal had kicked off called Kubo, which, um, like you mentioned, takes the Bosch installer from Cloud Foundry Foundation and installs a Kubernetes instance. So uh, we're actually going to get into lots of ways to, to install Kubernetes. But uh, yeah, so it was the project called Kubo, and then it became commercialized. So between Google, Pivotal, and VMware, they created a, a packaged offering called the, the Pivotal Container Service with the acronym being PKS, sort of like Google Container Services GKE, where the container is K like Kubernetes. The initial announcement kind of laid out what they were thinking with it. So it'll be interesting to see as we go forward, you know, when it actually, you know, gets close to shipping and, and kind of what it looks like as it gets closer to, uh, to that point in time. Right. Yeah. Because I think they said this wasn't going to ship until at least the last quarter of the of this calendar year, which could be anywhere from you know October to December 31st or something like that. So yeah, we'll have to wait and see. And, and I don't know if there's any bits available since it's now a commercial offering and, and VMware doesn't really do like open source per se, or at least that's not their business model. So we'll have to see how, how it'll be available. Yeah. It's a, I noticed, I had noticed uh, that the uh, Kubo project had, you know, it used to rely on Cloud Foundry, Pivotal Cloud Foundry uh, integration. Then they had an updated version that didn't so it was i was like oh i wonder why they're doing that for and then uh and then we saw this announcement so uh at least the kubo piece is is out there you can play around with but who knows about the rest of the things like you said vmware you don't always you know they don't always make it out onto github right the other thing that came out during the show but i haven't found it anywhere on the website is they announced on stage during VMworld, during the keynote that both vmware and pivotal were joining the cncf at like a gold or platinum member level, sort of the, the top level, which I think from an industry perspective is is good. It says that, you know, the folks from the CNCF were basically saying, hey, enterprise computing is now going to basically flow through through the CNCF. And, you know, I think when you when you put Kubernetes front and center of that, it's a fairly fair statement now. You've got every major cloud provider is supporting Kubernetes, Microsoft, Google, AWS, Oracle, Red Hat, Microsoft, VMware, you know, all the major players in terms of, of enterprise technology are now supporting Kubernetes. 
So we never like to say that, that anything's won in technology, but uh, it's a pretty pretty strong statement from the CNCF this week. Yeah, you, ne- you never know. Um, things change, but at this point in time, Kubernetes is, has seemed to, a, a pretty strong consensus has uh, developed around it. So speaking of that consensus, once you start getting a lot of people using uh, any given technology, kind of spawns itself into you know lots of ways to use it, lots of ways to install it, operate it, maintain it, upgrade it. So today we thought we would talk about all the tools that are out there, which it's not unusual, especially for open source projects to to have lots of tools. But let's let's start with the first basic question. Like, why are there so many tools to deal with Kubernetes? Well, I mean, I think it's a cultural thing that's just comes with open source software, right? Is the, the idea of, hey, there's something, this doesn't do what I want. So I'm going to make something that does what I want. And because you know, i you know, like open source and all those things, I'm going to share it with other people in case they want it too. That's the upside of, you know, of open source. Uh, the downside is you, you can usually get a, a pretty big growth in those areas of, of people taking tools um, and, and spawning them out a lot of different ways. And, and it makes sense from the standpoint of people have different requirements of what they're looking to do. And, and this tool focuses more here. Or I need an installer that can do this, that, and the other thing, but I don't care about this piece. And because stuff's really early, there's not like an official installer that you're going to submit a patch you know a pull request to with your changes to it right. that change how it works so it's like well i'll just i'll just either you know fork it and, and do it myself or start and create one from scratch so I mean, we saw this with OpenStack. we've seen this with plenty of other open source technologies too where there's just installers everywhere well and i think it kind of spawns out of this open source the concept and i don't want to get too philosophical and religious but i mean you know when everything was proprietary you bought software from somebody and that vendor typically gave you the installers and the package managers and all that stuff and with open source you know you have plenty of companies that spawn are spawned up as consulting companies as training companies you know as well as commercial vendors of, of open source or public cloud providers of open source so i think a lot of times you will find that popular tool gets spawned up by a consulting group or you know some other group and and they spin it up and then a community builds around it or something and and then somebody else will build it like you said because they start from some other you know belief of, of a problem set and, and it kind of spawns from there so let's talk a little bit about some of the common types of tools that we see so if somebody said hey I want to run kubernetes or I want to interact with kubernetes what are some of the ways that you can get started with let's let's sort of focus sort of on on day one or day zero if you will the two most common ways when when someone wants to get started is they either want to install it on their laptop or um they're looking for a service that they can like just log in and start kicking the tires it's usually time to time to success is usually the 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 kind of metric there. like i I just want to see what this thing is like cool i'll rip into the guts later but right now i just want to see what interacting with this thing is like right so from a laptop perspective, there are a couple of kind of tools that people might want to be aware of. So if you are working just with Kubernetes, so you just want to work in the in the Kubernetes kind of domain, probably the most commonly used tool from, from things of installing on your laptop is something called Minikube, Mini K-U-B-E. From an OpenShift perspective, from a Red Hat perspective, we've then taken a similar approach and built something called Minishift. Um, so if you want to run like OpenShift on your laptop, you can do that as well. And both of those tools will basically give you a sort of single node, single master, uh, so it's not highly available. It's going to try and be very respectful of the amount of RAM you have on your laptop. Typically, it's going to install it in some sort of virtual machine on your laptop, although there's there's variations on those installers. And they're going to give you, for the most part, kind of the, the same look and feel you would have is if you had a production-level, high-availability Kubernetes environment or OpenShift environment or any other environment that you're working on, like as a developer, for example. Getting that run and then having that interface where you can you know, start configuring it. And what's nice is both those tools... Uh, follow that kind of pattern to 
also configure your local CLI uh, tools too. So once it's done, you want to run your kubectl commands or in, or OC commands with with OpenShift. You can it it's already configured to point at that local instance. The other most common one you mentioned this is. I don't want to deal with any of that stuff, or I only have four gigs of RAM on my laptop or whatever. Let me just get this running in the public cloud. And there's kind of two ways, two categories of things that, that fall in. One of them is I want to use the native Kubernetes services from somebody. So whether that's a Google container engine, so GKE, maybe it's uh, Microsoft's Azure container service, the Kubernetes variant of that. So, um, and then there's some others that are out there. You may want to just log in, have a Kubernetes instance, start throwing some containers at it and get going. The other way to do it is um, there's a, a mix of basically kind of think of them as like quick start. So you want to use the public cloud. You want to use some of their compute resources, but you want to be a little more hands-on with the Kubernetes of that. And there's various kind of quick starts that are out there. The folks from Heptio, so like Joe Beta's company, has a quick start for getting things up and running on AWS. DigitalOcean has a really quick start way of getting a Kubernetes environment up on their, up on their droplets. So you can kind of decide how much hands-on Kubernetes you really want, but it, it takes you away from having to have, you know, have to own, maintain, manage any hardware underneath it. Yeah, I think that's a, another common way, like you said, is besides the just, hey, I want to push containers. Uh, a lot of, you know, usually have two groups, right? So you have developer developers who say, hey, I want to I want to build containers and run them. And, and then you have the more ops side where you're saying, hey, well, I care about how these containers run, how they get restarted, how they're scheduled, how I give them access to resources. Uh, so for them, you know, logging into something like an OpenShift on online or, or GKE, it's just like, well, here you go. Here's your, it's ready to go. Kind of, right. they lose a piece of that experience. So that's where, hey, I can get, I can bootstrap a whole, what would look like a production-ish cluster on, uh, you know, on a cloud and start to kick the tires there. So that's um, a, a popular approach too. And I think what we sort of laid out, even just in those, those two sets of examples is basically there isn't one set of users for Kubernetes, right? There may be developers that literally just want to write a Java application, a node application and push it, in which case they want as little friction as possible and as little kind of knowledge about Kubernetes as possible. In some cases, you have sort of these DevOps teams, which could be multiple people. It could be people with multiple skills who kind of have to know a little bit of both, you know, what languages and runtimes are supported, but I also need to know how do those masters interact with a kubelet or how do I do updates? And then you're going to obviously have operations teams who are, you know, need to know kind of everything about how Kubernetes is going to run from an infrastructure perspective. So it lends itself to, to answering a little bit of that basic question we had at the beginning, which was, well, why are there so many variations and options? And and the reality is, you know, there's a lot of different starting points that people have from this, uh, from from dealing with Kubernetes or just dealing with new applications. Yeah. And I, th- I think what's, what's even more interesting interesting as we get to kind of the next group, which is the Kubernetes specific installer. So installers built from the ground up, all they do is install and upgrade Kubernetes is uh, the first one. KubeADM is sort of quote, the official Kubernetes installer in the Kubernetes project. Uh, and you're like, well, well, wait, if there's an official one, why do we have all these other ones? Uh, one of the reasons is right now the tool doesn't deploy multi, multi-node masters. So if you wanted to have, say, like a, a fully HA production type cluster, KubeADM doesn't yet do that. Uh, so I think that's also, you know, where the feature sets of the various tools have, have allowed this to to scale out even further. And I think, so two points on that. One, before you go into any more of these, one is, you know, you mentioned, well, the, the, the official tool doesn't support HA. And, and I think there's some misconceptions out there in the market that, you know, we, we talked early on, Kubernetes has this concept of masters that kind of provide the control plane. And then there's, you know, the, the worker where the kubelets run and, and all that stuff. The reality is you absolutely can build HA highly available 
Kubernetes environments. It's just, um, like you said, sort of the, the default one that comes from, from the CNCF doesn't necessarily set that up for you, but there are plenty of other tools and things that come from vendors and things in the cloud that, that absolutely are HA. The other thing real quick for anybody who's listening to this, don't take these as, as completely extensive lists. Um, so if you don't hear, if you're working on a project and you don't hear your name called, don't feel bad. We're, we're trying to give some, some examples that um, we sort of know off the top of our head. We'll, we'll try and provide some more complete lists in the show notes, but uh, don't feel bad if we don't uh, list the the other 23 installer options or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, and that, that's a really great point on the on the, um, the highly available piece. I mean, Kubernetes designed from the ground up to be highly available. A lot of these tools, like some of the other ones that are Kubernetes specific, one I've worked with a good bit, Cargo, builds fully highly available environments. One, one of the, the best ways to understand kind of how that works and, 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 you know, not to go too into the details, but think about it this way is even the masters are just Kubernetes worker nodes that are only running Kubernetes core services. And those Kubernetes core services are based Basically, are the first pods that are deployed by Kubernetes. So it's it's Kubernetes treats its own you know system master resources as workload that it runs just on these specific set of nodes. Well, and the other thing about about HA environments is they're not simply going to be your normal like install command line and then yes 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 or, or return. You, know, you have to take some pretty interesting variables into consideration. I know you know you and I have both worked from a systems engineering perspective directly on some of these systems, and you know you start getting into you know how big and how much memory and how much CPU do my masters have? How physically far away are they going to be located? So how much delay is in between them? Are these in the same location? Could could a fiber cut or a you know a telco cut separate them? And you know how many? Where's master one, two versus three or more than that? So I think that's why there has to be a little more thought put into how you deal with with HA and that advancement has to be built into these installers and uh, and, and upgrade systems. One of the other things I would say, which it, it varies on all of these, whether it's these Kubernetes specific ones or even some of these quick start ones are there's basically like two levels of installers I would say is one is hey give me the Linux host you want me to install Docker and Kubernetes on and I'll go do that and the other one is point me at the IaaS provider whether it's a public cloud or private I will ask for the resources I need and stand them up too and then install them so like for example Cargo you can point it at using basically uses Terraform you can point it at say OpenStack and say you know spin me up I'm going to make a six node you know three masters and three workers it will also so ask for those six nodes first. So there's kind of like two different ways and, there, and there's pluses and minuses to both. But right. that's usually something you see, you know, kind of a breakdown between the, the tools also. And, you know, you mentioned Terraform. You know, Terraform sometimes gets lumped into that category, Chef, Ansible, Puppet, Salt. Are those tools, that, you know, the things that people think of as, as config management tools, but, you know, we're nowadays managing all sorts of different software. Those fit into a category of, of interacting with Kubernetes as well, true? Yeah, I mean, just like any other piece of software, those, those tools, both the, you know, besides config management, they also, you know, in different levels, do some amount of orchestration and use for installation. So you can say, I have Ansible playbooks that will install Kubernetes. And and actually, for example, Cargo uh, is one that that's actually, after it uses Terraform to build the nodes, then it uses Ansible to do the actual installation. The the OpenShift installer is, is, uses Ansible. Um, there, there's tons of chef recipes and things like that. So, you know, that may even make more sense if you already say a big puppet or salt shop, and you might be looking at that as a way to deploy Kubernetes because it fits more into your kind of normal workflow. So we've spent a lot of time talking about day zero or day one tools, right? The things that are going to help you set up an environment or install an environment or get you on board with it, whether it's single node or highly available or, or whatever. What about the stuff from day two to day 2000? What are some of the core categories that people should kind of be aware of in terms of tools? Uh, I, I just have to first start off by saying I'm, I feel like at this time in its life cycle, Kubernetes, it's, this to me is a real good indicator 
indication that there's a lot of uptake of Kubernetes is, you know, what's, what's only been around a couple of years, we're talking pretty heavily about day two tools. How do we upgrade it? You know, how do we monitor? How do we log it? Whereas some of these other uh, open source projects work on the past, it's, hey, we're five years in and no one's even asking about how we lo- are we logging this. How many people could possibly be running this if they're not logging it? Right. So right. Uh, so I think that's a pretty good sign for, for Kubernetes as a whole. I think, you know, it goes back to installation, but I think upgrades are big. That's when people say, okay, cool. Now 1.7.4 is out. How, how do I get there? Right. Uh, so there's a, there a number of different tools to uh, to do that. Yeah, and I think one thing for for folks to kind of immediately not a red flag, but immediately put on your radar screen is you know, and I use this example all the time. So if you've been on the on the operation side, the infrastructure side for a long time, you know, keep these timelines in, in mind. If you were a VMware shop, so you did virtualization, you were getting a major release of VMware about once every year, and then a minor release about once every six months, and and people were trying to figure out, okay, how do I work those into my schedule? If you were looking, you know, over the last few years at something like OpenStack. You're getting a new release about every six months. And with Kubernetes, you are pretty much uh, on clockwork getting a new release about every quarter and then some maintenance releases sometimes in between that quarter. So with that, start thinking about the idea that uh, your infrastructure isn't static. You know, your infrastructure is is software and and you've got to be thinking, okay, how do I work this in from, especially from an automation perspective and repeatability perspective? How do I expect to want to update that fairly frequently because you want to stay up to date with a fairly uh, recent set of features? Yeah, I think. I think that's that's huge. And I, I feel like there's a bit of a kind of misnomer there because people, because of that mindset, you're like, hey, I have a thing that works, whatever, you know, so it's VMware, it's Oracle databases. I'm loath to upgrade because the upgrade process could be potentially risky. And then the other new version may introduce new problems. What's actually in faster moving software world, these younger pieces of software and newer distributed systems kind of actually works backwards is once you start falling too far behind, it's way hard to catch up because no one's tested really, you know, skip five releases or you know there may be a bug in this version but then the next version next quarter fixes that bug it's once you get in that if you can stay in that pretty regular upgrade cadence it actually makes things more stable and less risky than worse so i think you know in terms of categories of, of sort of day two things it's always good to, to ask okay uh, i have it up and running what's a common way to update this uh, we are seeing you know we're seeing a couple of different things happen in the marketplace obviously if you're using one of the native public cloud services so sort of native kubernetes from one of the public cloud services, you, I mean, you shouldn't have to do anything. Think of it as like sort of a SaaS model, but you do have to be aware of when they are doing upgrades, when they are doing updates. So, you know, from a compatibility perspective, are they running, you know, 1.7, 1.6, 1.8? That's something to kind of be mindful of. How are they going to communicate that to you? But in terms of if you're running the software, whether you're running in your own data center or not, there's a, a few different options. I think what you're typically looking for is, are there default tools that a lot of people are using? Are there things that come with my distribution? or the commercial offering that I had. In general, the the community is working towards much more one-click rolling updates and things that you can do without disruption uh, whatsoever. So that's always been very kind of top of mind for the community is that this can't be something that can be an impactful event. The thing you can do, you know, kind of right off the bat from a a thought process perspective, whether you're a developer or, you know, more on the op side, is uh, think about as you deploy your apps and containers, you know, using the various capabilities within Kubernetes to make, you know, the loss of any individual container or pod non-disruptive, but using things like replica sets and, you know, published services and, and things like that. So if you have at least two, if not more of instances of your whatever, run your app running, then rolling upgrades work way easier. If there's, if that's usually what happens is there's some apps that are, you know, hey, well, we only have one of these. So it, yes, it can, it's going to go down, you know, won't be down long during an upgrade, but it will go down. Well, then now you're starting to get pushback. Well, when, when can we do this 
upgrade and can we push that back till after this busy season or and that's where you start getting so whether you're doing rolling upgrades now or not the key thing is as you deploy and design your apps uh, you want to make them you know very scalable and and resilient yeah and I, as you're talking about that I'm thinking about there was a really good example and I'll put it in the show notes of a company called McCrory Bank who is a, a bank down in in Australia New Zealand uh, covers the Asia Pacific area and they did a really nice talk uh, at Red Hat Summit it was part of the OpenShift uh, gathering they were basically talking about how do we manage our upgrades from one release to another and really talked about not only how they have, will have multiple systems in-house to, to validate you know new projects and new testing, but they're able to not only kind of blue-green or rolling upgrades uh, for their APIs for you know external mobile services and so forth, but kind of for their own internal testing. So it's a it's a real nice talk about in real life production, financial services, you know, high risk visibility. Uh, I'll put that video that, that have them talk about kind of how they do that. Next thing, obviously, so you've got something of it running. How do I monitor this thing and how do I manage this thing? What are what are some of the tools that might be available to people? Yeah, so I think, you know, monitoring is a big one. And this is, again, something I, I really like uh, what we're seeing with the Kubernetes community as a whole is, hey, look, you can use whatever tools you like, whatever tools you're used to. You know, you may even use a SaaS service like Datadog or something. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the community quickly or somewhat quickly coalesces around a default, uh, which right now we're seeing with Prometheus as a you know open source uh, monitoring and alerting tool. Uh, it seems to be a lot of people are moving in that direction with Prometheus. So it's, it's good to say like, hey, there is you know people, especially when you're new to something, you're like, well, I'll, I'll start with the default. And if it doesn't do what I need, I can move to something else. So it's nice that we're starting to see in a lot of these different areas and defaults emerge. So Prometheus is one. You said, obviously, the, the type of stuff you're used to, like New Relic, Zabbix, uh, Sysdig, CoScale, all those, all the usuals, Kubernetes being a you know kind of standard Linux, Linuxy you know built application, you know the, all the usual uh, monitoring things apply. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's important to to remember with this is so you look at something like the CNCF, which is where the Prometheus project is being governed these days, right? So the develop, you know, there's a whole community around Prometheus, and it's within the CNCF. So there's a certain amount of I don't want to say integration, but a certain amount of awareness that hey, the Kubernetes community should pay attention to what the Prometheus community is doing. They haven't embedded Prometheus as like a working group within Kubernetes, and I think that's really important to highlight for people because you know one of the things that happens when you get a lot of companies and a lot of engineers and stuff working in in a popular project is people go, hey, we get too much scope creep. And I think the CNCF has done a nice job of saying, we're going to encourage like some compatibility, like you said, or best practices, but we're not going to force this into the project. So if, if you don't like Prometheus, but you love Kubernetes, there are going to be lots of other options and you don't have to feel like, oh, okay, I got to wait for that next release of something in order for my Kubernetes to move forward. So they're allowed to move at different patterns, but but have awareness of each other so that you know if they want to do some integration, they, they know how to do it. I think it's also important from the standpoint of even if you do want to use Prometheus, once you kind of tie that rope between the two by putting them kind of in the project, um, you know, it's they start gating one another of like, well, we want to kind of adjust this, you know, this way we're reporting this information out of the API. Well, it's going to break Prometheus. So we have to wait for, yeah, and you end up with way more coordination versus sort of just more traditional best practices of API versioning and, and things like that. You can kind of, when you're in the same project, you can take you know, some shortcuts, which, you know, are fast in the short term, but in the longer term actually cause more problems. Right. And I think the other thing is we're we're really learning in the Kubernetes community some best practices. So you take, for example, what people are learning about like monitoring. And one of the things that they're learning is, you know, how do you do this concept of like sidecar containers where you put the application in a container, you run the monitoring sort of agent in a container, you put those both in the same pod. So they're sort of logically linked together. And the learning from something like that is also being applied to proxy services for applications 
applications like Istio that are starting to emerge and so forth. So the nice thing is some of the learnings from things like monitoring or logging, which are day-to-day things, that learning and those those sort of concepts and patterns are going to eventually flow into being useful in more advanced application patterns, which we'll get into maybe in a later show and so forth. I think that's pretty big is the, you know, seeing those learnings come back in and kind of adjust it. It's, it's really impressive to see how that develops. Right. Uh, I think the other two things, and we're going to wrap this up fairly quickly because we are kind of hitting our time slot and we've talked about a lot of tools. Logging kind of goes along with monitoring and management kind of the same way. There are some, you know, stacks like the Elk stack and the, the EFK stack in terms of logging and, and monitoring and management. There's third-party SaaS tools like Logly and, and lots of others that are out there. I, I think that same discussion we just had about monitoring kind of applies for logging as well. But but like you said, the fact that we're talking about logging and production just a couple of years into this project is, is really important. Yeah, that's like you said, it's just like the monitoring stuff, a lot of the same and, and same kind of thing. The, the EFK stack seems to be kind of established as the default, but again, not part of the project. And then, yeah, it's it's what fits into your flow. So why stand up a whole separate logging or monitoring just for Kubernetes if you can fold it into what you're doing uh, exi- in, with your existing tools? So we had a thing on our list. We said, hey, maybe we should dive into some of the application frameworks that are kind of becoming tools. And you know what? That is its own show or probably a whole series of shows that we will get into very soon. We're not going to cover it today because I think we're hitting up against our time frame. But Tyler, I think we covered a lot in terms of why are there so many tools? There's there's some good reasons for that and uh, some community reasons for that. I think we touched on getting people started, getting them going after day one. Any last thoughts about how do you wrap your head around what's the right toolbox to have for Kubernetes? Um, I, I think the first thing is one uh, and kind of how I would pick any sort of tooling when it comes to you know this in IT in general is one, what's the default? What's the most popular thing? Uh, those type of looks because you it has more community following behind it. If you don't have a strong opinion, at least start there where it's like, what is the thing that everyone else is using? Because I don't want to, I don't need to, you know, have my custom homegrown solution. Let me look there. And then if it doesn't do what you need, kind of see where people have peeled off to other projects. You know, so reuse maybe the, and also obviously reuse something you have if you like it, or you know, stick with something that's that's really popular. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. You know, use the defaults. Uh, reuse with with minor modifications if needed, and then uh, if you really have to build something on your own, you know, consider that sort of a last resort. Because um, yeah, at, at some point you're gonna have to you're gonna have to own that tool forever. So well, very cool. I'm gonna wrap it up with that, folks. As always, thanks for listening. You know, we would love reviews and feedback. All the ways to contact us are in the show notes. Uh, one other thing that we're gonna try and introduce, whether it be this week or the next week, we've had some requests to get the show into a uh, a transcribed form. So hopefully, if we can pull this off, we will get it. Uh, out as a transcribed form for you and uh, it'll be in the show notes as well. So for those of you that, that like to read as opposed to listening to us, we will hopefully have something for you there as well. So everybody, thanks again for listening. For Tyler and uh, for myself, we will talk to you next week.